If you would please turn to the book of Acts. We are in Acts chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. So who remembers what the theme verse of the book of Acts is? I said in every sermon that I preached. Do you remember what the theme verse? I'll give you a hint. It's in chapter 1. Anyone have any idea what it is? No, silence. No one knows what the theme verse. I know Nathan knows. He just doesn't want to say it. What is the theme verse? I'll put him on the spot. Shall be my witnesses in all the earth, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. Excellent. Acts 1.8. And this was a command given by Jesus to his disciples, but it's also a command given to us. It's given to the entire church. This is our responsibility as well as the disciples' responsibility. We are called to be Jesus' witness in the place where, he, where he's put us. And Jesus had given us the enabling power. The first part of that verse says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And that's what happened at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came upon the church. And we looked at Pentecost. And then we looked at Peter's sermon after Pentecost. This was the this was the model testimony that we can follow as well. And last week, we looked at the model congregation, how Jesus has equipped his church to fulfill this charge. Well, today, what we're going to look at is we're going to see an illustration of this witness and practice in the disciples, Peter and John. So Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Hear now the word of the living God. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. The ninth hour, three in the afternoon, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us, and he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with him, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. They were filled with wonder and amazement. And Lord, we pray that we will be filled with wonder and amazement at the way you act, the way you acted in this time in history. And Lord, we pray that we will be able to see what you have done then and how you are still acting now, and how you are acting through us. So, Father, I pray that you will anoint my words. Father, I pray that you will open our hearts to hear from you. We pray that you will be glorified, and we will be changed. We'll be changed more into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Well, this account of of, of Peter and John and the lame man, this gives us an illustration of how the disciples were carrying out Jesus' command in Acts 1.8 to be his witnesses here in Jerusalem. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to walk through this account. We're going to make a few observations. We're going to go through it uh, verse by verse about how Peter and John witnessed about Jesus. And then we're going to make some applications to ourselves, what this means to us, how we are to follow this. 
So the very first thing I want us to notice is where Peter and John were going. They were going to the temple. And what were they going to do? They were going to pray. They were going to worship. This was their intention. To use the terminology that we use here in Northgate, they were attending the ordinary means of worship, the ordinary means of grace. So they didn't go to the temple with the intention of healing the lame man. They didn't go to the temple with the intention of witnessing about Jesus in this miraculous and this very dramatic fashion. Their intention was simply to pray. It was simply to worship. It was simply to participate in the means of grace. And I really can't overstate the importance of this. The overstate the importance of the ordinary means of grace. And what is the ordinary means of grace? What we're doing now. Worship, prayer, the sacraments, the reading of, the, of God's word, hearing God's word preached. I can't overemphasize the importance of this in the life of the Christian. And what these means of grace are for us is they are a conduit with God. Think about it. They connect us to God. It's like, you know, we have your phone and, and, you, and you want to call your, you know, I want to call Lynn when she's at work. The conduit for me to talk to my wife is my phone. Well, these means of grace is a conduit for us to talk to God through prayer, through worship, through his word. They connect us to God. They make us aware of his presence, make us aware of his will. And, the, and these are disciplines. These are spiritual disciplines of, of daily worship. And think about it. Do you daily spend some time worshiping the Lord? It could be in your car when you're driving to work. Are you singing praise? Or in the shower. Maybe, maybe your mother, you have a little baby. The only time alone you get is in the shower. Are you praising the Lord? Are you praying? Are you reading Scripture? Are you meditating in Scripture? And these are daily disciplines that connect us with the Lord. And these are not in substitute, but these are in addition to our regular corporate worship, where we get together, we gather together with, with saints at least weekly, and we participate in the sacraments. And that's one of the things I love about being here at Northgate, is we, we participate in the Lord's Supper every week, either once a month in the, in the morning, and then every other week in the evening. And all of these things connect us to God. They allow us to hear that still, small voice of the Lord while we are while we are connected to this conduit, these means of grace. And Peter and John had this. Peter and John were connected. Peter and John were finally attuned to the Lord's leading. So that afternoon, it says ninth hour, which is three o'clock in the afternoon, the Lord led them to this man in the temple. They had this divinely orchestrated appointment with this lame man that we read about. So the text tells us in verse 2 that the lame man was was at the gate daily. He was at the gate daily asking for alms. And alms was basically, he was begging. He was asking people for money because there was no social security. There was no disability. This man was, was dependent on strangers to help him or, or he would die. He would die of starvation. And Peter and John may have passed by this man every day without noticing him. See, the fa sad fact about life in this fallen world, as, as we heard in our prayer request, is that there are people who are sick. There are people who are disabled, especially here. This is a time before modern medicine. The sad fact is there would be many, many beggars in the, in the temple, many disabled people, blind people, lame people, uh, people who were maybe missing limbs, people who were lepers. There were many people who were sick in the temple. 
I remember when I was a, a kid, I would go to New York City with my uncle, and we would get off the off the bus, and I would be shocked. I'd see people with with you know with, with one leg or people with missing eyes or multiple disfigured people, and it got to the point that you've seen so many that you just looked past them, you ignored them. But on this day, the Lord had plans for this one particular disabled man. And he had a plan to, to do something in a very clear, a very open, and a, and a miraculous way. See, because Peter and John were so attuned to the, to the Lord's leading, they were aware. They were aware of the Lord drawing them to this man. And when the man asked for alms, when he asked them for money, verse 4 tells us that Peter and John looked directly at the man. And this may have been the first time that they even noticed him. Right? I, I would imagine that, that few people... Even the people who were giving alms to this man even noticed him. I suspect they probably just gave him money and looked away. That would only be natural to look, to, to look away. We wouldn't want to see the, the brokenness, the, the depravity uh, that was just so common in our fallen world. But that day the Lord made them notice the man and the look at him. And, and the Lord orchestrated this encounter. The Lord directed his servants to, to look at this man, to pay attention to this poor, lame man. But not only did, did Peter and John look at the man, Peter instructs the man to look at them. Right? And the man himself probably was uncomfortable looking at others. Perhaps he didn't want to look at others because people didn't, didn't see him as a man. Maybe they saw him as subhuman. And he may not want to see the, the pity or, or the disgust or the contempt, or maybe even the complete apathy that most would have shown to him. So he would naturally have looked away. But this is not the, this is not the view of Peter and John. This is not the view of God's servants. They saw this man not the way the world sees him, maybe not even the way they used to see him, but they see him through the, the compassionate eyes of their Lord. Their Lord who has chosen this man this day for healing and for salvation. And this salvation, this is, this is personal, this is direct, this is intimate. And, and, and through his, his servants, the Lord is actually looking into this man's eyes. The Lord is looking into this man's eyes. And this response by Peter and John, this made the man hopeful, of course. Right? He, he, it's a good sign. Someone showed compassion. He, they, they thought that he, was, he thought they were going to give him money. But then verse 5 tells them, that what he was expecting to receive tells us that he was expecting to receive something from him. But then something unexpected happens. Instead of giving the man some money, Peter tells him that he doesn't have any money. Right? You, can, you can almost feel the disappointment that this man found. He, he finally found someone who showed compassion, someone who looked him in the eye, someone who wanted to help him, only to find this man doesn't have any money. And can, can we identify with this? Don't we often, when we're facing life's difficult situations, feel like we're either surrounded by people who want to help us but just don't have the means to help us, or there's people who have the power to help us but they really don't care. They have no concern to help us. And this may even be our view of God. We may even think that either God can't help me, doesn't have the power to help me, I'm, I'm so far gone that even God can't help me, or maybe God doesn't want to help me. But my friends, nothing could be further from the truth. See, this man is about to get so much more, so much more than he could ever even hope for. Right? The best he could have hoped for was, is maybe he would get enough money to buy some food, maybe enough money to, to hire some people to, to help him get around. There's no way whatsoever that he, he, 
could have even seen what was coming. And I want to look specifically at Peter's words to this man in verse 6. Peter says, I have no silver and gold, but, but what I have I give to you. And I think this response provides for us a mighty contrast between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. See, it's, it's without a doubt that silver and gold, money, this is really the driving force in this fallen world, money. Money is this driving force. Money is, is literally the currency in this fallen world. Our entire society is founded on money. Capitalism, finance, business, all are founded upon money. All focused on money. The goal of capitalism is, is to maximize our profit. Money is, is the single biggest driving force in this fallen world. But money is not. Money is not the driving force in the kingdom of God. Jesus makes this, this fact very clear to us. In the Sermon on the Mount, which we had as our confession of sin from the Beatitudes, Jesus makes this clear. This is, as I mentioned, Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount is where Jesus gets his clearest uh, description of the character of the kingdom of God. And Jesus makes it clear to us that we are not to lay up for ourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. And think about retirement accounts, 401k, stock portfolios. But we are to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And Jesus tells us where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. And Jesus makes it explicitly clear for us as Christians, for those of us in the kingdom of God, that we cannot serve two masters. He says, for we will either hate the one and love the other, or we will be devoted to the one and despise the other. We cannot serve both God and money. But sadly, sadly, most Christians and, and, and most Christian churches are really no different than the world. We too, as a church, we too as Christians, are focused and, and centered on money. There's a famous story uh, about, this, about this passage. And it may, it's, it's probably not true, but I think it nicely illustrates this, this point. And the story goes like this. St. Saint, Saint Thomas Aquinas and a Roman Catholic cardinal, they're strolling along in, in St. Peter's Square when they're approached by a beggar. And after giving the beggar some money, the, the cardinal says to Aquinas, says, good doctor, the church can no longer say, silver and gold have I none. To which Aquinas responds, true, your eminence, but neither can we say in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And the point is that we have gotten worldly power, but we sacrifice spiritual power. And this really sums up our modern church. We've adopted a, a capitalist worldview centered on money. And as a result of choosing worldly power, we have forfeited spiritual power. Now, to be clear, it's, it's not that money has no role for Christians. Right? After all, we still live in, in this physical world, in a material world. But rather, what it is, is our attitude. Our attitude about money is vastly different than that of the world. See, for the Christian, money is a resource. It's a, a resource provided by God that enables us to fulfill the calling that he has in our lives. See, our focus is to be on the calling, not on the resource. And I think Matthew 6.33, uh, Jesus sets forth this principle. And it says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things, i.e. The, the resources we need to fulfill this calling, all these things will be added to you. So Peter and John, they are much different than our modern church. 
They, like Jesus himself, they, they were not wealthy. They were not powerful from a worldly perspective. But what they did have, they had spiritual power. And this is what Peter offers to the layman. Peter says, I, do not, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. And he says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And while the man was hoping for money, he got so much more. So much more than he expected. He got what we call unexpected alms. And here, here we need to understand just what Peter and John did. And really, what, what are the similarities and what are the differences with our witness today? See, I maintain that the primary gift that Peter and John gave to this man was not the physical healing, but rather the primary gift that he gave to him was salvation. See, the physical healing both symbolized and confirmed the spiritual salvation. And this is similar to what we heard in our gospel reading from Mark chapter 2, when Jesus healed the paralytic. This is where the, remember the paralytic's friends, they, they removed the roof and, and lowered the man down to Jesus. And do you remember what Jesus' first words were, the, were to the men? In Mark 2, 5, Jesus said, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, my son, your sins are forgiven. See, what Jesus was doing, he was solving a much bigger problem that the man had than his physical infirmity. This man, just like the, the lame man in the temple, was a sinner. He was an enemy of God. And because of this, the primary need of both these men, really the primary need of every person who's ever lived, other than Jesus himself, is the forgiveness of sins. The most essential need was spiritual. It was not physical. And when Jesus pronounced this forgiveness on the paralytic, he perceived there was an objection of the scribes who were, who were questioning their hearts. Remember, they say, why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus responds. He said, why do you question? Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. And Jesus heals him to show that he has the power to forgive sins. See, for Jesus, the, the physical healing was the proof of his authority to forgive sins. That, and that is what saves this man. So Peter and John, by healing the lame man, and, and notice they're not healing by their own authority. They say, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, they too are confirming Jesus' power to save. Now, while today we, we don't have the power to heal like Peter and John did, we do have the same power to declare God's saving power. And it's important for us to understand that God alone is the one who is healing God alone is the one who is saving. And this is true both for Peter and John, and it is true for the church today. And like Peter and John, we too, we are the instruments of the gospel. We declare the gospel. And the Lord uses this declaration of the gospel to achieve his salvation. Salvation comes from God, but, but we have the privilege to, to be the instrument through which God applies that salvation. And it's through the gospel. And isn't that an amazing privilege we have? And while this certainly was a physical and a miraculous healing, I don't, want, I don't want you to hear that this didn't happen. This actually took place in space and time. This man was physically healed. But this physical healing points beyond itself. It points to the spiritual healing. It confirms the spiritual healing. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at how this physical healing is symbolic for the spiritual healing. And notice that this healing is instantaneous. 
Right? Even modern medicine. Maybe modern medicine could have helped this lame man. But today we would, we would use surgery. We would use medicine. We would use physical therapy. And all of those things do not act instantaneously. But this is not what we see in verse 7. Verse 7, it says, And he took him by the right hand. Peter took him by the hand, right hand and raised him up. And immediately, immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. The man was healed immediately. His, his body his feet and his ankles were made strong. They were remade. They were regenerated. And what we read in verse 7 is a physical depiction of the spiritual regeneration that happens when, by grace alone, through the, the Holy Spirit applies the work of Christ alone to an elect sinner, transforming the sinner from, from spiritual death to spiritual life. And this transformation happens immediately. See, spiritual generation, it, it, doesn't, take in, it doesn't, doesn't happen in stages. It happens instantaneously. We have a sinner at one point is dead in their sins and trespasses. And then by grace alone, the Holy Spirit imparts new life, and he is spiritually alive. And the first fruit of this regeneration is then saving faith in Christ. So the man's physical self is immediately made whole, just as at the same time his spiritual self is made whole. His spiritual self is made alive. And this healing, both physical and spiritual, are all of God. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But notice there's also a response. Now, the response is not the cause of the salvation, but the response is the proof of the salvation. And this response is evidence of the supernatural work done by God. And this response is both physical and spiritual. And we see this response in verses 8 and 9. And it says, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. See, his walking, his walking was evidence of his physical healing. And his praising God, his praising God is evidence of his spiritual healing. But not only is he walking, He's also leaping. I just love that image. He's so excited. Leaping con conveys the joy that he felt of being healed. He, he was not content to simply walk. He was not just made well enough to walk. He was made strong enough to leap, leap like a deer. He's leaping for joy. But this leaping is even more significant than that. Because leaping here is an allusion to Isaiah 35, 6, that says, Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. And Isaiah 35, this was our Old Testament reading. This was a messianic prophecy. This healing, as with Jesus' healing in the Gospels, show the breaking in of the kingdom of God into this fallen world. Basically, what is it's displaying and undoing the curse of the fall. But it's also a foretaste, and this is what I mentioned to the kids in the kids' message, children's message. It's a foretaste, it's a type of the physical healing that will occur for every single one of us. Every single believer will have resurrection bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. And a couple of months ago, when I was preaching through uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, we talked a lot about our resurrected bodies in the new heavens and earth. And, and we will be running and leaping. You know, we may have been 100 years old, confined to a bed, but when Christ returns, we will be instantaneously transformed, and we will have more strength, more vigor than the greatest uh, Olympic athlete has in his prime, and that will be every single one of us. So what we see here is, is a foreshadow of the promise that takes place in this healing. 
So they're walking in the leaping. This is, ele- this is evidence of the man has been physically healed. But the praising God, the praising God is evidence that he has been spiritually healed, that he has been saved. See, just as it's impossible for a lame man to walk and leap without being changed, it's also impossible for an unregenerate sinner to praise God without being changed. And just as the man must have his legs and ankles regenerated to be able to walk, so he also must be made spiritually alive by the power of the Holy Spirit. He must be regenerated by the Holy Spirit in order to praise God. And these verses are the verification of this double miracle that took place at the temple that afternoon. And these two miracles were a great blessing to the man, but their significance is even greater than this man. It's even greater than this individual. Take a look again at verses 9 and 10. It says, And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. They were filled with wonder and amazement. Basically, this got their attention. It was obvious that this was not done by these men. It was done by God. It was a work of God. It was something only God can do. It displayed God's power in this man, and it was a testimony. It was a testimony that brought God glory. God was glorified in this encounter. So we just walked through this account. Now what I want to do is I want to make a few applications that, ha- that, that can help us fulfill Jesus' command to us. Because we too have the same command to be his witnesses in our Jerusalem, in our Judea, our Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, the first thing I, I want to make clear as we look at this is that our, one of our applications is we do not do physical healings. We do not have the power to physically heal as Peter and John did. That was a temporary gift given for a transitional time. And that's this transitional time is what we read about in the book of Acts. As we've stated many times, these miraculous gifts, they were given to confirm the apostles' teaching. Because this was a time before Scripture. So they couldn't go to Scripture to look at what they were learning. So they were doing acts, and, and God was confirming it through the miracles. But now we have the time of, of Scripture. Now Scripture is complete. We use Scripture to confirm teachings of, and doctrines, not miracles. So as, as I mentioned, I always tell you, open your Bibles when I'm preaching. So if I preach anything that's contrary to Scripture, that's how you confirm what I'm teaching. Now just because... We don't do miracles the same way that Peter and John and Jesus did. This doesn't mean that God doesn't still heal. No, God certainly does heal. And he heals in response to our prayers. As as we heard today, prayer works. Prayer does work. And this healing may come through medicine. It may come through unexplainable ways. But God answers these prayers. And we have seen both these types of of healings. But what we don't have is we don't have the power to pronounce healing. Last week when Jack and I were in the hospital, I couldn't just go into Susan's room and say, all right, you're cured completely from meningitis. Get up and you go home to to Nashville. We couldn't walk into Nikki's room and say, all right, get out of the coma, wake up. We don't have that power. But what we do is we pray. We pray and we, we trust God. And we know that our prayers are heard. We know our prayers are effective. And we know that they will be answered according to God's perfect will, his perfect love, and his perfect timing. Now, while we do not have this power to declare physical healing, each Christian, each one of us here was born again, like Peter and John, we have the power to declare the spiritual healing through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is a a real power. This is an amazing power. 
And it's not only our privilege, it's our duty to exercise this power for God's glory. That's what, he's, that's what it means to be his witness, to declare his gospel. And the declaration of the gospel, again, it is, it is what it means to be a witness. It is part of our char- charge to be his witnesses. So let's take a look at our application of these principles. The first point of application for us, just like Peter and John were, were attuned to, to, to God's will through participating in the ordinary means of grace, through, through prayer, through worship, through scripture, through sacraments, we too must be attuned. We too must be attuned to God's will through our participation in the means of grace. See, we all want to be used by God. We want to be used by God in a, a mighty way. We, we desperately want to know what God's will is for our lives, how we can know him better, how we can serve him better. And the question is, are we taking advantage? Are we taking advantage of the means of grace that he has ordained for this very purpose, that conduit that he has given to us to connect to him? And this is our first application. Be in worship. Be in prayer. Be in the word. This is our best way to know God. This is our best way to know his will for our lives. That's our first application. Our second point of application follows closely from the first. That is, when we are, when we are tuned to God's will, when we have that, that, that conduit, we will be alert. We will be alert to his, his providential leading, and we will be willing. We will be able to respond to this leading. See, Peter and John, they, they had their eyes open. Uh, they were able to notice this man that God had put in their path. So we too, we too have to have our eyes open for, for the people that God is, is bringing into our path, where God is working near us and how he wants to use us as part of his plan. And we do this by asking ourselves, what is God's agenda? And, and we want to be committed to doing God's agenda, doing his will. We must commit to, to knowing his will and doing his will. But not only must we seek his will, we must also seek to have the same compassion for others, the same compassion. We see this compassion that Peter and John showed uh, this man, even by the simple fact that they looked him in the eye, they looked at him. And this leads us to our third application. Our witness is personal. It's direct. Peter and John looked at the man, and then they, they had him look back at him. See, God's work through us requires this personal connection with others. See, we don't minister from afar. We minister up close and personal. And yes, there, there are few. There are few who are called to a, a mass media type of ministry. In fact, I came to faith through Christian radio mainly. And there are big-name Christian teachers and preachers that have far-reaching influence on the church. But those men who have this mass impact, they're very few. People like John Piper, people like R.C. Sproul, people like Tim Keller. But the vast majority of us are not John Piper's or, or R.C. Sproul or Tim Keller. The vast majority of our impact is going to be personal. And that's fine. That's the way the Lord intended it. We are going to impact the people that we know, the people that we interact with directly. And our witness is going to be up close and personal. And this is going to be difficult. It's much easier to stay from a, from a distance. But when it's up close and personal, it's going to be messy. We may want to look away. We may want to just throw them a track. But the Lord works through this, this real connection that we have. This real connection we have with others. Our next point of application is an important one. And this may be shocking to many of you. It may go against everything that you understand about Christian charity. And some may even be offended by what I'm about to say and vehemently disagree with me. 
But the fourth point of application is that the goal of our witnessing is the conversion of the unbeliever, not on relieving physical suffering. You may have heard me praying earlier for, for a man and praying that for his salvation and praying for his cancer to even get worse in order for it to bring him to Christ. And some people may say, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. See, our goal is to get people saved, not to make them feel better, not to make them happier on their way to hell. In other words, the most valuable thing that we have to offer unbelievers is Jesus. It's the gospel. It's not physical help. It certainly is not money. Now, yes, as a church, we are to relieve the the temporal sufferings of our fellow believers. This is our responsibility. We looked at this last week when we looked at the, the model church in Acts 2, and we saw their radical generosity as the members actually sold their own property to take care of the needs of others. So we are to help financially help our fellow Christians. But it starts locally. It starts with our own family and then our own church family. And then depending on our ability, we work out to Christians and other churches that we may know or have a connection with. But, and here's the controversial part. We are not obligated at all to financially help unbelievers, to financially give to unbelievers. Nor would simply giving them money be in their long-term best interest. And I could hear the gasps. I could hear you thinking, that's unchristian. That's unloving. That's cold. That's mean. No, in fact, the, the very opposite. I would say the opposite is unloving. Remember, I said that money is the driving force in this fallen world, not the currency of the kingdom of heaven. See, if we think that we can simply throw a few dollars at an unbeliever with a need and that fulfills our obligation to be Christ's witness, we've completely missed the point. See, what is it that the church has to offer the world? What makes us different from other nonprofits and, and charities, even the, those whose, whose primary purpose is to provide this, this physical relief and suffering? Even those founded on, on Christian principles, such as the Salvation Army, their primary purpose is to relieve suffering. And they, and they help those in need, both believers and unbelievers. And this, this is a good thing. This is, this is a noble thing. But my friends, this is not the function of the church. See, the church represents God's kingdom, not the kingdom of this world. And the church and the church alone has the answer to the unbeliever's most pressing concern. My friends, we have the gospel. The gospel, which is the instrument the Holy Spirit uses to, to take an unbeliever from death to life, from darkness to life, from the eternal horrors of an eternity in hell to the eternal magnificence of heaven. And throwing a few bucks at a sad situation, it may ease our conscience, but it does no eternal good for the unbeliever. And it fails to focus on the kingdom of God, but rather what it does is it focuses on this fallen world. It's, it, it's, it's thinking like the world. <clears throat> and Jesus said, Jesus called us to be salt of the earth. But he said, but if the salt loses its saltiness, we're no longer good for anyone. And when we think and when we act and when we adopt the ways of this fallen world, which is driven by money, we have lost our saltiness. Our only benefit to this fallen world is when we remain distinct from the perishing world. We remain distinct from it. We remain in the kingdom of God and and we throw the the lifeline of the gospel into the world to rescue the perishing. This is their, their only and eternal hope. This is the only blessing that we as a church have to give. 
Now, let me give a caveat. This, this doesn't mean that we don't wisely use the world's resources like, like the shrewd manager to accomplish kingdom purposes. Frequently, I used to, when, when the church, when our finances were stronger than they are now, I used to use the promise of financial help to get people to the church so I can share the gospel with them, so I can pray with them and help them. But my goal was never, my goal was never to solve, to use money to solve their problems. It was always to lead them to Christ so that he could solve their sin problem, which was much more, much more dire than their financial problems. And you may have heard of this, this old saying. It says, I'm sure most of you heard it. It says, give a man a fish and you feed him for a day. Teach him to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. And this is, this is good advice. This is good secular advice of, of charity focused on relieving suffering. You want to teach the person to be self-sufficient as opposed to being dependent. This is great advice. But I have an addition to this for Christians. And that is, introduce them to the fisher of men and he will feed them forever. See, that's what we have to offer as Christians. See, the bottom line of this fourth application is don't give silver and gold. Give them unexpected alms. Give them Christ. That is what we have. That is what we can do differently. Now, in one way, it was much easier for Peter and John because they literally did not have any silver and gold. They could not be tempted to, to give what they did not have. They could, they could only give what they had, and that was Christ. And because they didn't have money to give when the man reacted with joy and praise God we know that it was sincere we know that it was genuine and not simply an attempt to manipulate and get more silver and gold and sadly sadly I've seen many people through our ministry here at Northgate that are not interested in Christ that are not interested in the gospel but they want as our silver and gold and maybe the Lord is blessing us by taking away our silver and gold so that we can become more like Peter and John. Well, our fifth application, our fifth application is when we witness for Christ, when we emulate Peter and John, yes, it benefits those we witness to, but ultimately, ultimately it brings God glory. Ultimately, it brings honor to our, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Ultimately, it makes him known. It is evidence to all that our witness is empowered, not by our feeble ability, but by his divine power. Christ is seen and Christ is glorified. And this, this alone really should be our only motivation that we need. So my prayer, my prayer is that this example of Peter and John's witness to Jesus will encourage us, will encourage each of us to also be Christ's witness where he has placed us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this example that we have of Peter and John. Lord, we pray, we have the same message. We have the gospel message. And Lord, that is the only hope of this fallen world. And I pray, Lord, that you will bring us to people who need to hear that message. And we will share that message. It's not silver and gold. It's not worldly things that they need. They need you. Give us the courage. Give us the wisdom. Give us the ability to be able to communicate that in a way that they will understand. If there are any who hear me, either hear my voice on the live stream or on sermon audio or here, who do not know you, that is what they need. I pray, Lord, that that will change now. They will come to a saving knowledge of you. Call upon the name of the Lord and they will be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.